0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Uh, today I want to talk to you about wisdom. And, and I don't know exactly where this conversation will go. I just know I have a couple of thoughts on things that, that have kind of come together. And, and I guess the best way to start this episode off is just to tell you about some of the places I spend my time and my energy. And let's start with podcast. So I'm a podcast junkie myself and some of the podcasts that I love are Radio Lab and, and if you're not listening to other podcasts, like I get how important Mormonism is to all of us, but if I could if I could suggest that every single listener in this audience that you expand your horizons and, and we'll get to why in a moment when we tell a little bit of the the science behind the paradigms we hold. But I listen to Radio Lab and Radio Lab I think is the best podcast in the entire world. And what they do is they take anomalies in nature, human behavior, science, whatever it may be, politics, legal system. I mean, they just, any, any arena is fair game as long as they're taking some unique thing that's happening and then they spend time dissecting it, sending reporters to that place to, to talk about it. So, Radiolab is the the if you if you do nothing else after listening to this episode, go listen to Radiolab. Um, I also listen to things like On Being from Krista Tippett. I listen to people like Richard Rohr and Rob Bell and the Liturgist podcast. And and when I listen to these various uh, audio programs and these various voices, and, and they're not Mormon and. They each are different in their own way and there's this diversity. This diversity is important. So as I listen to various things, like, I'm touched by them. I, I hear real wisdom when I sit and listen to people who come from very different paradigms speak to the messiness of, of human life, of the human experience. And, and I call that wisdom, like when I, when I hear people talk about faith development, or I hear the Liturgist podcast, I dissect the feminine divine, or I hear Rob Bell talk about boundaries, or Richard Rohr in his book Falling Upward, you you begin to sense that there are so many people in this world, and we all have gifts and things to offer. And as I relate that back to Mormonism, Mormonism, while it claims As one of its concepts of its theology is that Mormonism welcomes truth wherever it may be. The reality is that Mormonism is very reluctant, very skeptical, very unwilling to hear other paradigms out, to hear other perspectives, and to truly wrap their arms around truth outside of itself. And yes, you get you get prophets, seers, and revelators quoting a poem or two in, in conference or quoting somebody else outside of the church, but it's only when it reinforces the idea that we already hold. You don't see anybody trying to push us out of our comfort zone. And when I think of wisdom, what wisdom does is wisdom gets me to reflect on myself, And to be aware, like, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. Or, oh, yeah, I I could do that better. They've done studies when it comes to politics, for instance. And when it came to, like, the Romney-Obama election, if you lived in an area that was less than 800 people per square mile, you were almost assuredly, as a community, going to vote for Romney. And if you lived in an area that was over 800 people per square mile, you were almost certainly going to vote as a community for Obama. And there's some science behind this, which is that all of us defend our paradigm and we're scared. We're we're very fearful of other paradigms. We feel threatened by them. And so when people come to us and say, hey, I know this is the way you do things. I know this is the way you walk and you talk. But have you considered this? And the less exposure that we have to people with differences, the, the more reluctant we are, the more skeptical we are, the more hesitant we are to hear diversity, to listen to diverse perspectives and to open ourselves up to the possibility that there might be something there that's true that's right that's good that we don't have and perhaps we could welcome that in and when we when we are not exposed to diversity when we haven't learned to open ourselves up to truth outside of ourselves and we do this as communities too we tend to be we tend to find ourselves more in ethnocentric, an ethnocentric stage. And I want to speak to this for a moment. When we hold an ethnocentric view, we're very concerned about the rules of our community. We're very concerned about the boundaries of our community. We're very concerned about whether others in our community are living up to the standards our community has set. And we're very protective of, of those beliefs of those perspectives, and we we always see anybody outside of our tribe, outside of our community, as bad in some way, or at least less than. Like, we've got it right. We're the right tribe. We've got this figured out, and it's up to others to realize that they need to make changes to come to us. And there's rules to be part of our tribe, and there's boundaries to be part of our tribe, And don't you dare cross those lines because I'm watching you. And what I'm saying is that when we have exposure to diversity, when we say like, look, let me set Mormonism aside for just a moment. Because again, you really aren't because Mormonism is truth. And if Mormonism is truth inside or outside of the church, when you explore paradigms and perspectives outside of the church, you are still doing Mormonism. Now, it may not be acceptable, it may not be an acceptable Mormonism to 90% of its membership and leadership, but it's still Mormonism. And so if you can just set institutional Mormonism and cultural Mormonism and theological Mormonism off to the side for just a moment, and if you can open yourself up to listening and looking at and exploring different views and listening to a podcast like Radiolab, Or reading a book like Falling Upward from Richard Rohr. Or listening to a conversation. I've got a book on Audible right now. Between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And it's beautiful. And there's so much wisdom and truth in what they're saying. When you open yourself up to diversity. When you open yourself up to uh, other people's perspectives. With a true, real willingness to say like, oh. They likely hold things that are true that I hold the opposite and it's not true. Like I, like I'm not perfect and I don't know perfectly and my tribe isn't perfect. And so I'm willing to be vulnerable and I'm willing to give it a chance that there's something this person's going to say or do or talk about or suggest that's going to give me additional truth in my life. And, and Mormonism doesn't do a very good job at this. When I, when I listen to general conference, when I listen to talks in my ward or lessons from our manuals, what I see is very, a very strong ethnocentricity that, that we always are reinforcing the boundaries and the rules. We're always reinforcing that the authorities inside the tribe are Are much more full of truth and goodness and wisdom than the people outside of our tribe. And, and if we just set all of our defensiveness off to the side for a moment, if we realize like wisdom is those aha moments, like, oh, there's something different there. There's something beautiful that's true that, that whatever that person said or did or pointed to, it helped me Better encapsulate whatever that truth was like i've like now I know that truth better because of what that person said what what I personally have come to is that mormonism and i don't mean this is any offense, and this has nothing to do with whether whether the church is true or not true, but Mormonism has very little wisdom it's almost like the, the analogy of Plato's cave where all you see are the shadows on the wall. And so you think the shadows are just incredible, but it's only when you are allowed to then turn around and experience the larger world that you're like, Oh, there really wasn't much there with those shadows. And Mormonism often feels like when it comes to wisdom, like we're swimming in the shallow pool, but it's the only pool we've known. And so until we recognize And expose ourselves until the conservative Republican moves into the big city and is now surrounded by more than 800 people per square mile and he or she is exposed to the diversity of human life and human experience. Only until somebody gets that exposure, again, until they do, they're scared of it. They're fearful of it. They distance themselves from it. But soon as they're exposed to it, something happens. They begin to sense like, oh, my life was really limited before. Look at all the beauty. Look at all the truth. Look at all the wisdom that is in the world, that is in human nature, that is in human experience. And so when I, when I grew up in Mormonism and I held my ethnocentric view, it was the cream. It was the, the the most perfect thing in the world and everybody else was missing out. And I was scared of all of them because I knew us was right. But as I've grown up in my life, I've exposed myself to different voices and paradigms and perspectives without a defensiveness to defend my own paradigm or feel compelled that I had to hold it and hence, be cynical and skeptical of others. I didn't do that. Instead, I said, like, oh, what that person said was beautiful. And it's different than what's inside my tribe. And it's helped me get closer to truth. It is wisdom. And so, in Mormonism, I, I sense there is very little wisdom. There's very little outside of reinforcement There's very little outside of skepticism and cynicism and defensiveness against anything that doesn't walk and talk and look like our tribe. And so it's easy to go to C.S. Lewis and pick out one of his poems when it reinforces Mormonism. But it's a whole nother thing to sit and listen to somebody have a conversation about healthy and unhealthy boundaries, and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, He's talking about us when he talks about unhealthy. I'm going to push that away. Instead, we need to get to a place where whether or not it builds up Mormonism, that the important thing is whether or not it's true. And I want to give you a real life example. I was in Sunday school a week ago. The lesson was on prophets. It was Lesson 37 out of the Gospel Doctrine Manual, We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. And, and I'm going to turn over the audio here, and I'll stop it a few times along the way and just give you kind of what was running through my mind as this was happening. And, and then we'll play. I raise my hand because I just can't let us reinforce things that are untenable. And so I'll share with you here my comment that I made but let's go to the audio.
1: As the Council of the First Presidency, President Joseph S. Smith taught, if the president of the church should become unfaithful, God would remove him out of his place. I testify in the name of Israel's God that he will not suffer the head of the church, whom he has chosen to stand at the head to transgress his laws and apostatize. The moment he should take a course that would in time lead to God would take him away. Why? Because to suffer the, a wicked man to occupy that position would be to allow, as it were, the fountain to become corrupted, which is something that he will never permit.
0: So this comes directly out of the manual. And, and I love this teacher. He's a, he's a good man. He's asked me for my input on lessons before when the, when the historical issues come up. And and if you're standing where he's at at the front of the room, I'm in the back right corner and I'm listening to this. And I knew when I walked into the room that the lesson was on this topic. And so I don't normally do this, but I, I put my recorder on on my phone because I knew that this was going to I knew it was going to go down this avenue. And and I wanted to see how this played out. And I knew that I could use this at some point to have this kind of a conversation so he sets it up by saying that the church is established that it can never get off track because if it did, God would just remove that leader and and I don't want to go into detail about it, but that just so strongly feels like circular reasoning and and it's 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 kind of a logical fallacy to go down this road and and so he says, like the Lord will never permit the prophet of the church. To lead the church astray. And the trouble is, we've we've dissected this before, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Our history shares serious examples of prophets. Multiple prophets in a row. Leading our church away from truth on very serious issues. And so, what does it mean to lead someone astray? And so let me play a little bit more of the audio. Because the class now is going to reinforce what what us, our tribe, what our tribe thinks, how our tribe frames this. And and data doesn't matter. History doesn't matter. What matters is what does it mean to be Mormon and do you look like, talk like, walk like one of us?
1: How does that give you a feeling of peace? But, I, think, I think it gives us, of course, of thought that leads us to comfort—we know where the fountain is. We find our own truth all the time, but in terms of uh, truth for the membership of the church, it has to come from one Absolutely,
0: it gives us comfort. Like, like we're comforted to know, like these guys that we've sustained as prophet seers and revelators. They can't mess up. They can't make serious mistakes. They can't lead us off the path. And and that comfort doesn't hold up when you look at the history. Like in any given moment of time, prophets, seers, and revelators can impose what they think is the will of God only to have it be racism and bigotry and homophobia. And it's happened numerous times. So again, the question is, do we ever really want new truth, or do we want to just keep telling ourselves the things we've told ourselves?
1: Well, it also gives us comfort in challenges. we know the right. the a simple matter of confidence. We can have confidence in the things that prophet <clears throat> <throat> reveals to us. We have to have that confidence.
0: This last guy says, it gives us confidence. Right? But sometimes pretending that these guys don't make serious mistakes, it's a false confidence. And it keeps us from ever raising our hand... And being outspoken about something that's unhealthy in our community, and so you can say like the, the, the God will never lead the church astray, but until you take a look and acknowledge the historical evidence and talk about what it means to go astray and in whatever definition we come up with, if it survives against the evidence. Then anytime we say like it gives us confidence, all we're doing is comforting ourselves with false comfort, reassuring ourselves with something that isn't tenable. We're, we're playing make believe and we're pretending. And, and for me, that's not sufficient. And so here's where I raise my hand.
1: There's a paradox here and in- what that statement says is that the prophet will not be unfaithful and he won't be wicked, right? He'll he'll be a good person, and if it's not a good person, the Lord will remove him. But it, but it's not saying that he won't make mistakes. And and so I've read this quote before, but there's an ending I haven't read before that I want to read. This was uh, this was Bruce R. McConkie regarding Brigham Young, when Brigham Young early in church history was teaching some ideas about the nature of God that were incorrect. And Elder McConkie says, I do not know all the providences of the Lord, but I do know that he permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church and that such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality. I repeat, Brigham Young erred in some of his statements on the nature and kind of being that God is as to the position of Adam in the plan of salvation. Now here's the key sentence. What he did is not a pattern for any of us. If we choose to believe and teach false portions of his doctrines, we are making an election that will damn us. What he's saying is, and when you mix this statement with the statement you just read, there's a big difference between a prophet being a good person and doing the best they can and still recognizing that they still can teach error and that we're still accountable to not follow error when the Holy Ghost tells us that's what it is. So what's the power of the um, By the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. We're all responsible to have the Holy Ghost within us, and sometimes—and it's happened in church history—the Holy Ghost is going to disagree with what a leader has taught in the past or even in the present. So, so first,
0: I raise my hand and I and I give a historical example where Brigham, where where Bruce R. McConkie says Brigham Young taught false doctrine, and if we follow or teach or promote what Brigham Young did then we are doing so to the detriment of our own salvation. Now, this is a completely new thought, right? Like, like Recognize this. Yes, there are people in the room who kind of understand there's been some errors. There's a lot of people in the room that have no clue. But culturally, we've told ourselves a story that we can trust the prophets. And what Elder McConkie here says is no. If that prophet says something... That contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're going to damn yourself by promoting it, believing it, and teaching it. That's a very different thought than what the manual's trying to say. And it's a very different thought than what this room collectively is trying to reinforce with themselves. It's also a very different thought from what the correlation department wants us talking about. It's why the manual's designed a certain way. The manual's designed for us to reassure each other and to comfort each other and to reestablish like yes our tribe's the right tribe and everybody else is a them and we are an us and we're right and they're wrong and we don't need to listen to what others have to say and so i throw this new thought out and the teacher bless his heart the teacher comes back with with asking somehow like how do we discern how do we know then how do we figure it out and 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 right away i don't give anybody else in the room a chance because i i know I need to establish the, the, the scriptural and theological basis here, which is that in the end, we are told to trust the Holy Ghost within us as the ultimate authority. And the problem is, we teach that to investigators, but the moment you join the church through baptism, you are taught in a thousand different ways to sacrifice your inner authority on the altar in in an effort to be loyal and obedient to the outer authorities of the institution. Like Moroni 10 no longer applies if the Holy Ghost within you contradicts what a church leader says. And I'm putting it back into the scriptures. I'm saying, no. Brigham Young's teachings don't trump what the Holy Ghost tells me. And so I share with the class, like, it's the Holy Ghost within us that's the ultimate authority. And let me just be more clear there are going to be times that the Holy Ghost inside you is going to disagree with what a leader has taught in the past and even in the present.
1: So can the Holy Ghost lie to us? I think all of us get different answers. And so I think that's a very debatable question.
0: So I finish up there. And and I should have been a little bit more careful with my words. I didn't want to imply that the Holy Ghost lies to us. Rather, that our own emotion and feelings and comprehension and understanding, we're deceived by those. And we often, maybe even a majority of the time, we often attribute the Holy Ghost. We, we credit the Holy Ghost with what is not the Holy Ghost. What is, what is our own feelings and emotion and beliefs and paradigms and defensiveness and cynicism and, and, and need to protect boundaries. Like We often call that the Holy Ghost. So I wasn't trying to say like the Holy Ghost lies and we should have a debate about that. But rather, it's not a cut and dry issue because we all get different answers on these questions. And so it's not appropriate to make a blanket statement and say the Holy Ghost, there's no deception in that interaction ever because there is. And the other thing that's of note, like... There are people in this room who love when I speak up. But there's also a handful of people in this room who feel like they are watchmen on the tower. And generally when I say something that really, like, pushes the tension in the room, somebody raises their hand and, and gives the orthodox commentary back. In this instance, it doesn't happen. And, and it's strange, like, I don't think for a second Please hear me here, because this is important for each of you. I don't think for a second that I overall changed the belief of the room. Like, everybody in that room heard me, they felt some discomfort, they felt some cognitive dissonance, their brain went into its mechanisms of confirmation bias, the backfire effect, belief persistence, and others, and... The room after about a 30 second thought process of trying to figure out why they were uncomfortable went right back to holding their ethnocentric perspective because they're in ethnocentricity like that's what our brains do and so please understand like don't fool yourself did you change one person's mind maybe did did was somebody else already on the path of of, um, faith development or cognitive development and me standing up to the room perhaps gave them some extra momentum to work through that development. Maybe. I hope so. It's why I do it. But I'm not naive enough to think that I changed the room. That, that everybody walked out of that room that day going, oh yeah, they make mistakes and I shouldn't, I shouldn't automatically trust what they say, but I should, you know, be in tune to the Holy Ghost. And if the Holy Ghost is telling me that they're wrong, like I should honor that in some way. I should respect that and talk about that and give voice to it in some way. Like, I don't think, I don't think, it, it may be one person, if you're lucky, did that. But there was silence after this. It it was almost like nobody could challenge it. Because I just laid out Bruce R. McConkie throwing Brigham Young under the bus. Which is another point I need to make. People ask, what is the way in which to have influence? Bill, how do you do it? When you go to class, what is the mechanisms you use? Let me tell you first, I know the scriptures really well. I know our history inside and out. I know the quotes by our leaders that are useful in these conversations. I know them inside and out. And I know where they're found. And so anytime I get into a lesson in class, I try in my brain to figure out where are the really interesting directions this lesson is going to go and to be ready for those. And sometimes I'm surprised, but often I recognize it. So when I looked at this lesson, I could sense that there were two possible areas of interest to me that we could go in. One was that the prophet could not lead the church astray. The other one is this idea that we have of prophet seers, and revelators in in some way having a more direct contact with Jesus. And so I had a couple of Elder Oaks quotes ready, and I had this quote from Bruce R. McConkie ready. And both of them open up our minds to seeing things a different way. So when when I'm sitting in a Sunday school class, the, the number one thing I would say to every listener who wants to have an impact in their Sunday school is is not to just raise your hand and to share what you think. Not to raise your hand and say, I disagree with you, I believe this. Because the mechanisms of psychology will come into effect and everyone in that room will simply dismiss and discredit you in their mind or maybe even by raising their hand and being a watchman on the tower. Instead, you have to have a quote ready. You have to have a general authority who backs up what you say. And the higher in ecclesiastical stewardship that person is, the better. If you can share President Monson, great. If you can share the living prophet, incredible. If you if you have to go to a past prophet, fine. If you have to go to a living apostle, great. If you have to go to a past apostle, fine. If you go to a 70, less so, but but that's still better than your voice. The the thing with being in ethnocentricity is you think everything matches up. Your brain has convinced you that this all fits together in ethnocentricity. Somebody in an ethnocentric stage or a Fowler stage three is incapable, generally, of handling contradictions and paradoxes. They're just not there yet. Their brain isn't equipped to handle that. So in their mind, Elder Uchtdorf never contradicts Hubie Brown, never contradicts Boyd K. Packer, never contradicts Ezra Taft Benson. And certainly prophets aren't going to contradict each other. And certainly living prophet seers, and revelators are not going to contradict each other. Like they teach the gospel, and they've got it figured out because they talk to Jesus. So when you're in a class, use quotes. And give people paradoxes. Show people that that Hubie Brown doesn't mesh with Boyd K. Packer, and you don't have to impose that one is right and the other is wrong. Simply lay the paradox on the table, and you can say like, "I respect everybody else's perspective, but I agree with Hubie Brown." You can do that, but people in ethnocentric uh, development, people in that stage, people in Fowler stage three, they're not equipped to handle the paradox. It's why I think Joseph Smith hits on this deep truth when he says, quote, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest unquote by proving contraries. Truth is made manifest. Like when we lay a paradox on the table and we have to wrestle with that, It's then that we come to a greater greater idea of truth. And I simply want to end saying like, in this instance, nobody retaliated. Everybody got quiet. And it's important to note, like that's not always going to happen. And even if it does, it doesn't mean the room came to your side or they changed their mind. I think we have to understand deeply when Jesus says straight is the path and narrow is the way and few there be that find it. Like like in ethnocentricity, the way is Mormonism. But most of us listening recognize that Mormonism isn't the path. Mormonism might be a tool belt you wear on the path, but it's not the path. And the path is to wake up. The path is development. The path is improvement. The path is connection to both other humans and to the divine, which, by the way, is captured in the two great commandments. The path is awareness. The path, again, is waking up. And if you recognize that that path, few there be that find it, then you recognize your job isn't to change the belief of the entire room. Your job is to lay the paradoxes on the table and to work to wake someone up. It doesn't have to be ten people. It may only be one. And you may not see the fruits of that labor, in a month or six months or a year or five years. When I lived in Ohio, great ward, great, just great people. And and as I served as a bishop, when I started, I would have called that a very orthodox ward. And over the course of the next uh, four and a half years of me serving as a bishop, and then a year of me serving as the ward mission leader, over the course of that time, I could see people waking up, people being more vulnerable, people claiming their own authority inside themselves back, like taking back their authority because they were given it at one point, especially if you were an investigator, you were given that. Like, like this is your decision. You go pray. You get an answer from God. Like people claiming back their authority people letting go of black and white paradigms and beginning to see kind of the messiness of the world. And, and when it comes to wisdom, again, recognizing, and I only say this for myself, I see so little wisdom in Mormonism, especially current Mormonism. So little. Like nobody's saying anything new. And the only things we're saying is to reinforce the old boundaries and rules and to just... Set up new rigidity and boundaries and rules. Nobody's expanding your mind. Like how many aha moments have you had? How many times have you listened in conference or in talks or in other places? And you go, wow, that's incredible. That gave me a new thought, which took me down a new avenue, which has got me wrapping my arms around some new perspective of truth. Mormonism has handcuffed itself. It's unwilling to give any credibility to voices outside of itself. It's unwilling to acknowledge that the world gets things right while it's getting things wrong. It's unwilling to give credibility to voices like Richard Rohr or Rob Bell or um, Brene Brown. It's unwilling to acknowledge that there are really wise spiritual experts outside of itself who have a greater degree of truth and wisdom than it does. And I'm saying that if we want wisdom until Mormonism decides to wrap its arms around it, you have to go elsewhere. You have to step outside of Mormonism and look at other things and study other things. You have to be willing to listen to other people's perspectives and other people's views. And and I simply close by saying like I value wisdom I value different voices. I value hearing what other people are passionate about and seeing if that truly does add to the truth I already have. And what I've found in the last two, three, four years is this world has become incredible to me. And just the other day I had a church leader tell me that this world gets more and more confusing. And I would simply say, like, once I've opened my eyes and taken a step outside my tribe and listened to wise voices all over the world, I then responded to him that this world is the least confusing it has ever been. And I mean that. And I think, look at yourselves in the mirror. Is the world more confusing today or less confusing? Once you've opened yourself up to, like, I want truth wherever it's at And I'm going to start looking outside Mormonism for truth. The moment you did that, did the world become more confusing or less confusing? And again, I think the secret to letting go of defensiveness, to wrapping our arms around truth is to expose ourselves to diversity, to expose ourselves to different people who have had different journeys and different experiences and to allow them to have something of value to offer you at the, the end of this episode in the show notes. If you go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org, you'll find me linking several podcast episodes that I consider to be full of wisdom and learning and expanding our minds. And it's my hope that some of you will enjoy those, uh, take a chance to listen to those and see if you find new truth there. It's my prayer that we will become a wiser people because if we do I think it fixes every major problem on our plate right now. May the Lord warm your shoulders. May he help you to be a wiser soul. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ.